My goodness. You know, if you want to see that again, it's like the sixth, seventh, eighth time I've seen this. If you want to see this again, you can. You go to our web page. You click on the Eat This Book icon. It'll take you to our Eat This Book page. Scroll down, and it's right there. We upload every week a different Bible in Five uh, video, even though that's a few more minutes than five. But, but still, it goes corresponds with our reading. Now, I know that we're reading Job right now. You should be in, in the middle of Job. Uh, but because we preached a series on Job a couple of years ago, and um, the evenings, or second reading you've got each, each week of the Psalms, we decided to go ahead and, and tackle that one today. Um, let me preface it by, by mentioning this. I was a, a junior in college, and life was going very well for me. Oh, oh my goodness, you know, I, I had no crises of health or finances or relationship. You know, I didn't have my girlfriend dump me or I wasn't in debt and I didn't have any trouble with the law. Uh, my, my, my family back home was doing great. Uh, I was a junior at Moody Bible Institute in the um, pastoral ministries major. I was going to be a pastor. I had burned all other bridges. There was no plan B. There was no going back. This is the way I was, I was going. I was over leading some substantial ministries, I think, at Moody. I was an RA. Um, I was being asked out at Sadie Hawkins weekend. Uh, life was just going well for me on so many fronts. Hey, the best friends I had ever had in my life. Uh, it was sunshine and roses for me externally. But internally, uh, Category 6 hurricane was hitting my faith in a major, major way. Now, it's not because I was engrossed in some horrific sin. Uh, actually, I was... I think walking close to the Lord is like my quiet times were, 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 were fantastic. College kid, they were very good. And, and my faith, I really did love God. But this was the issue. I had, I had been told my whole life that if you follow God, blessings. If you don't follow God, cursings. And so I, I stopped and was looking at the world. And the sum I kept coming to was not at all what had been told to me. And so I, I stopped and said, you know, what if there really is no God? And this is all just one big game we're playing. And yeah, I mean, I was sincere and all, but there have been a lot of sincere people over the years, right, who have believed in, in lies. Sincerity does not equal reality and truth. And so I thought, well, am, is that me? Am I just another one of the multitude of sincere but deceived people? And I couldn't, you know, I thought I've gone from being um, the greatest deceived person by having this faith, no doubts, to being the greatest hypocrite person because I was continuing on even though I had doubts. I mean, I was putting all of my time and energy and money and passion on this thing that I did not believe in anymore. My, 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 I began to doubt my beliefs and believe my doubts. And I, I would remember at night, I would uh, try to pray. And I had, had had years of being on my knees at night before I go to bed. Sweet fellowship, I think we might call it Christianese type stuff. But it was very good time with the Lord. But this not this was different. I'd get on my knees. I couldn't pray. And it's not that I, I didn't love God. I wanted God to be real so much. 
but I was just afraid he wasn't. I could do nothing but cry. My poor roommate had to feel like I was going bonkers. I thought I was going bonkers. Have you ever had a dark night of the soul like that? Maybe externally everything's fine. But doubts, you know, the doubts just, what do you do when the hurricane of doubts just attacks your, your faith? And all the levees that you had built in Sunday school and youth group and Awana and quiz, and they're, they're being breached. And you did not anticipate this storm. I mean, but you were pretty sure you couldn't weather this one. And you were going to be a, a casualty. I mean, I was packing up for a full-blown evacuation. What do you do? Because to, to pretend that doubts don't come is just a... a uh, major exercise in, in, in dysfunction. It is, it is, uh, doubts are part of the system. They, they are, as long as we live down here, this side of glory. So what do you do when they come? Just pretend, hope that they go away? Does, doesn't work. Doesn't work. One of my favorite psalms deals with this very issue. Somebody who was going through it, and, and and turn with me in your Bible, Psalm seventy-three. What a, a, excellent, excellent Psalm. Psalm seventy-three. If you don't have your Bible's Bible in the pew rack in front of you, I think it's page five sixty-eight, somewhere around there. Five sixty-eight. Psalm seventy-three. You see, as soon as the superscript, it says a Psalm of Asaph, and you may not have a clue who Asaph is. But you know, if you live back in King David's time, you would know who Asaph was because he's a pretty popular guy. Asaph was a Levite. Asaph was a direct report to King David. Asaph was appointed by King David, one of the top three musicians, choir director, music worship leaders in the nation. And you got to know, it wasn't like they just did worship on the side kind of thing. The whole nation did worship. I mean, the whole nation was was centered around worship. Remember when God used Moses to tell Pharaoh to get my people out of Egypt? What do you say? Get them out of Egypt that they might worship me. This is what God's plan was. And so Asaph, being one of the main leaders in the nation, godly, he wrote the songs. He, he was the man, Asaph. And so when he says... Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. It's the kind of thing we would expect a godly guy like Asaph to say. But you know, most people believe this, I think. If you, maybe they'd want to scratch out the Israel part. But atheist, agnostic, uh, Christian, whatever. Most people would say this general idea. Good comes to those who are pure in heart. You know, if in fact you, you are going to do well, then good things will follow. If you don't do it, then consequences follow. It's just what we were told our whole life. It's what you tell your kids, right, parents? Kids, do your homework, be nice to people, and it'll go well for you. And your, your teachers say, you know, if you really apply yourself and you work hard, it's going to go well for you. And your employer says, you know, if you give me everything you got and you keep trying to improve and get better, it's going to go well for you. You know, the whole Western civilization... Our, our ethics and our legal system and our economics are all based on this idea of, of reaping and sowing. We call it justice. And, and that's why it shouldn't surprise us that God is a just God. And that actually this reaping sowing thing, 
This is part of the biblical worldview. This is the way it's it's supposed to be. Yeah, we we kind of know it in, in our hearts. This is the way it's supposed to be. But you don't always see it like that, do you? In this world, verse two. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. Now you say, well, well, Asif, what's the problem? Was it just long hours? You know, you had some, some, those Jewish festivals can be really long and I can imagine all the cantatas and practicing and stuff had to just wipe you off. Or was it working with King David because he can be a stickler, I know. Or was it that harp player guy, I know, a prima donna harp player guy, they're all the same. No, no, that wasn't the problem. What was his problem? For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He said, you know, I was told that if I'm faithful to God, blessings, and if you're not faithful to God, cursings. But I looked at the people who are not faithful to God, and there's no cursings. There's prosperity, for crying out loud. And so he, he has this earthly perspective that he's going to share with us here. Your perspective is always going to include how you see others and how you see yourself. And so, of course, both of them are here. And if, if you look, let's, let me just... You don't have to advance the slides too much beyond this, but just listen to this for a second. Verses 4 through 12, follow with me. And notice the pronouns, right? They, he's talking about the wicked, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to men. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice and their arrogance. They threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? Sorry. This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. He's, he's focusing. You see, he's focusing on the they. These, these, these pagan folk. And what does he say about them in verse 4? And keep in mind, he's not giving us a theology here. So he's not saying that wicked people have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. Like wicked people will never get sick and have no issues. But from his perspective, it sure looks like they're doing fine. Especially when he's thinking the hammer should be fallen, the lightning bolt should be fallen on these guys because I believe that if you're faithful, God will bless you, and if you're not faithful, you won't. And so the lightning bolt should be fallen, but it's not a lightning deal they've got. It's a, it's a sunny picnic thing they're experiencing. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. Where's the bad diagnosis? I don't see it. They are free from the burdens common to man. It's like there's this immune system to bad stuff happening. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. They don't even try to hide it. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. I don't know if you ever played the guitar. If you played the guitar, your left fingers, when you first start playing, it hurts like all get out, doesn't it? Those strings are, are cut into your fingers. But in time, you develop calluses. It's just thicker skin, but it, it, it allows you to play and not feel the pain when your heart is callous. You know what? You don't feel. You don't have the, the, the conscience working on you. You don't have the convictions. It says these guys have a calloused heart. And from it comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. These guys are very creative people. They are creative in how they're going to do their sin. 
They're creative in how they're going to hurt one another. They're creative in how they can manipulate the system to get ahead. They're, con- they're just very creative. It knows no limits. They're evil. They scoff and speak with malice. I don't encourage you, but if you went to YouTube and you looked up by atheist Richard Dawkins, he's got a lot of stuff on YouTube, scoffing Christianity. Please. Yeah, I can imagine Asaph, these, these we wicked people know his theology. And I can imagine them taunting him, Asaph, 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 tell us again, Asaph, how we're supposed to be cursed because we're living such a bad life. Tell us that. Tell us about how good your God is, Asaph, and how he's blessing you. He's mocked on a regular basis. They scoff and speak in malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. I'm God. And their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, they're groupies. They turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They've got all these people following them and thinking they're the cats meowing and and constantly uh, reiterating their, their, their quotes. And they say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? God doesn't know anything. If there's a God, he knows squat. This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. And on top of that, just put the cherry on top, they increase in wealth. They've got all the money on top of everything else. He's just just not having a good day here. Asaph is looking at this going, this is not what I was told is supposed to be. Look what he says in verse 13 and 14. He has a twisted view about himself, right? Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. Who's punishing him? God? He's just come, he's come full circle here. He says, oh, I know I was always told that, that if, you're, if you're good, God's going to bless you. And if you're wicked, bad things are going to happen. But it's flip-flopped. If you try to do good things, you try to live your life right, it's going to be a, it's going to be a bad it's going to be a bad deal. He's looking at, at these guys that are getting away with murder and he's saying, you know, I think I see how how it really works now. I think I understand. These guys aren't no no bad things are happening to them. He says, I wonder I wonder what it's like to live your life not really giving a rip about what Jehovah thinks, whether I'm going to please God or not. I wonder what it's like to live not caring about what uh, the congregants think or what King David thinks or what Mrs. Asaph thinks just to, just to cut loose. I wonder what that would be like. He says, I've, I've wasted my life. And maybe they're telling him, Asaph, you get one shot at life. But you're wasting it with a religious game. It's just, it's just, and please know this, y'all. Doubts are not reserved. They're not reserved for weak people. Right, I mean, Asaph is a guy. He's one of the godliest guys in town. He's a key leader. This, this doubts thing. If, if you hold these inside, thinking no one else feels like what I feel, you, you're wrong. He has been there before you have. He's wrestled this through. Eugene Peterson in his in his the message, it's a paraphrase of this. I like the way he puts it. He says, "What's going on here? Is God out to lunch? Nobody's tending the store. The wicked get by with everything." They haven't made piling up riches. I've been stupid to play by the rules. What has it got me? A long run of bad luck, that's what. A slap in the face every time I walk out the door. 
when you begin to doubt your beliefs and believe your doubts, I mean, really believe your doubts. You know what happens? You come to a, a conclusion that says, I need, to, I need to walk away from this. Like a, where Asaph was. When you, you get to this point where you say, you know, the poke in my office, everybody's having an affair. Or at least they're doing some very inappropriate flirting, this romantic, and they're, they're all okay. They seem to be happy. Or, you know, the kids in school, I was always told, you know, that if, if you get in the party scene, you know, this, your life consequences are bad and ruin you. But these guys, I know them. They're going to their parties with their sex and their alcohol and their drugs. And you know what? They're doing great grades. They're getting, they're getting into the good, right schools. Where's the consequences here? I, I, I don't see them. Or, or this idea that, you know, the people who cheat are the people who are moving ahead. Or the liars seem to be the ones that avoid trouble. You want to get yourself in trouble, you start telling the truth. Or you know what's really funny about this is those people that scheme and connive to get ahead, you know what happens to them? They get ahead. And nice guys really do finish last. And so you know what? I, I, I see how life works now. And I, I, I think that maybe I would just like to cut loose, go a little Hugh Hefner-esque, Jason Bieber-esque, Paris Hilton-esque, and just, just do whatever I want to do. That's not the place for an amen, by the way. So but they just, just want to do it. I know it's where I want to go. Because you know what? It seems like the cruel, cocky guys get the girl. And the immoral girls get the guy. Where's justice in this? What's this all, all about? Now, it's a man for all seasons, the play. It's a story about Sir Thomas More. Sir Thomas More uh, countered the King of England with his... Uh, uh, King of England wanted to do something immoral, stupid, and wanted Thomas More to okay it. Thomas More said, no, we can't. We've got to go by the word of God. Thomas More ends up in prison. And so Thomas More's daughter, Meg, is, is upset about this. She's like, it's like Asaph. She's going, this makes no sense. How come the arrogant, cocky, godless people get to be, be king and the, the godly people are, end up in prison? What is that about? And her father says this. He says, if we lived in a state where virtue was profitable, common sense would make us good and greed would make us saintly. But since, in fact, we see that avarice, anger, envy, pride, sloth, and stupidity commonly profit far beyond humility, chastity, fortitude, justice, and thought, and have to choose to be human at all, why then perhaps we must just stand fast a little? You see what he's saying? He's saying, you know what, if, if, if you were godly and you got all this great stuff, then the most ungodly people would be godly. They would just be going through because they really want the stuff. And so they would do everything to get it. But when you have to choose to be godly, knowing that it's not going to result that way, perhaps that is where godliness is found. Verse 15, look where he gets to. He says, says if I had said... I will speak thus. I'm going to just lay it out, what's going on in my heart. I'm going, to tell the, I'm going to tell the folk, I would have betrayed your children. Can you imagine? Pastor Mike is up here preaching one day. Maybe he's at youth group with the students. And he says, you know what, guys? Hang on. I've been wrong. This is all nothing but one big joke. We're all wasting our lives. 
I'm, I'm out of here, you should be too. And then walks off. Wouldn't that be horrific? That's what he says. If I stood up before the people and shared this, I can't, I can't, I can't do that. He says, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. The more I reasoned and the more I used my logic to try to figure this out and put two and two together, I kept coming up empty. I kept getting worse and worse, depressed. And then verse 17. If you got your Bible, you got a pen, you're going to want to circle verse 17. This is the, the key, not just to this text, but this is the key to dealing with doubt. Until... I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Sanctuary. Sanctuary. What the the word means and what it's referring to here is a holy place. The actual presence of God. For Asaph, that would have probably been the tabernacle grounds. There, that would become the temple one day. There they stored sanctuary, they stored the word of God. You know, everyone didn't have a Bible, right? The printing press isn't around yet. People don't want to read anyway. But the scrolls would have been kept at the tabernacle. Sanctuary. Sanctuary is where you went to focus on God. It's where you went to be still and quiet and wait on him and pour out your heart. Now, the crazy thing is Asaph worked there. This was his work. But but maybe this, maybe he'd been there so many so so often. You know, familiarity does, right? And and there were problems there, and problems with the worship team, and problems with the administration, just issues, and 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 it became a religious place for him, but not a sacred place for him. I wonder about us sometimes. You know, you go to church, and. Uh, it's really, it's not a sacred place, not a, not a holy place. Intention to really meet God, really meet God. How many of us really expected to meet God? Really meet God? No, it's just something we do, man. It's just, it's, it's just there. Maybe God will show up, maybe he won't show up. You know, let me go on, offline on this one for a second. That's really an arrogant thing to say. It's really not true. God is omnipresent. He always shows up. The issue is not might God show up. The issue is might I show up. That's the real issue. God's always there. Whether there's feelings or not, he's, he's, God is not feelings, right? So whether there's feelings or not, God is just as much there. He's always there. The issue is do I show up? John 4, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, the Father seeks worshipers. It means he's looking for worshipers. The Father is seeking for... I think the Father is here this morning. This is a seeker service, but we're not seeking. The Father is seeking worshipers. The issue is, will he find any? I say, oh God, may you find at least one. May, may, may you find one in, in, in my seat. May, may I, I, I be there. The sanctuary. So here's the question. When was the last time... You were in sanctuary. And then ask you when the last time was you were in church. You may have been coming for the last hundred years. But sanctuary is that full, complete focus, concentration, expectation of God's presence. When's the last time you were in sanctuary? Maybe you've had quiet time a lot. You do quiet time all the time. But when's the last time you were in sanctuary? You know, maybe Asif. You know, let's all the choirs and stuff go home early. He's, he's dealing with this inside. And he's walking through tabernacle grounds, off hours, not a lot of people there, but he sees the, the brazen altar. 
And he remembers. You know, God wants a relationship with, with us, with me. And my sin gets in the way, so we've got this sacrificial. Maybe he sees the scrolls, the word of God, or at least he sees where the priest would stand and read it. And he just stops. And he thinks about the promises of the word of God. Maybe he gets off in a corner somewhere, and he just starts singing. Maybe songs he wrote, worship songs. Not for anyone else to hear. Maybe just for God to hear. Maybe, not even for God, maybe for his own soul to hear, right? And as he does, and he says he's in sanctuary, he's in the place of God's word, in the place of God's presence, expectation, you know, a radical shift happens. A rad- radical, radical shift. If you look from this point on, you know what? He's praying. Changes, goes to first person. Before he was talking about those wicked people, he's still going to talk, now he's going to talk to God about the wicked people. Before he was talking to himself about himself, now he's going to talk to God about himself. And so his perspective shifts. That's what sanctuary does. If you try to figure out the doubt thing on your own with your own logic, it's going to kill you because it's much stronger than you. Sanctuary is the only place you're going to get it resolved. But he says in verse 18, he's getting a clear picture of them now. Surely you place them... On slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed? Completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Now, this judgment thing that he's pointing to here, please know, this is not just some masochistic, kind of vengeful fixation sort of deal, you know? Oh yeah, I forgot. They're gonna get theirs. Ha ha ha. You evil people, you think you're getting away with it. Ha ha, you just wait. Did you get that from this? That's how I used to read this. When Jesus talked about the judgment, didn't he cry over Jerusalem? Say how often I would have gathered you under my wings, but you you, you would not. Didn't he cry and say they were like sheep without a shepherd because he knew what was coming down the road? This idea of of, of judgment is not uh, to uh, try to hurry up and convince Asaph to not leave. It's, it's, it's saying this. It's saying, you know, you know, Asaph, you know, inside you, you know there should be justice and a right and, and wrong as far as reaping and sowing. That's right. That's right. That's part of being in the image of, of God. And it's true. But don't stop yet. The people, including yourself, you're kind of all in line at the grocery store and you've packed your carts with stuff. And, and their people are just opening the stuff in line and they're uh, enjoying it in line, not thinking anything about it. But sooner or later, you get to the checkout counter. And so you're not there yet, but you will be. You will be. As, 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 as Asaph begins to realize that this world is not my home, that there's a futility and a superficiality to living for stuff, perspective shift, major paradigm shift. He has a shift about himself too, right? He says, when my heart, verse 21, was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. And then one of the, I think, greatest passages in all the Bible, if you're looking for some verses to memorize, boy, this is it. Verse 23 says, yet I am always with you. You hold me. Excuse me. I'm going to get emotional. You... (laughs) You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, 
you will take me into glory. You know, there's a thought out there among more liberal theologians that there was no afterlife understood in the Old Testament. And certainly, the afterlife is more developed in the New Testament. But, but look, you see what he says? He was very aware that this life isn't all there was when it's all done. You know what? There's glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? I'm not waiting to get to heaven to see my grandfather. I'm not, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. This whole earlier, he's come full circle. Hasn't he? Earlier, he looked at the stuff that the, they had, the prosperity. And that's what he wanted. Now he says, earth has nothing I desire. What freedom from, from sanctuary. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, now, stop for a second. Remember verse 2? He says, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. He's come full circle. But as for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Now, sanctuary changes our perspective. If you're not there, you can't work it up. If you're not there, you can't will it. If you're not there, you're not going to have that paradigm shift on your own. It's sanctuary that's going to bring that about. And that changes everything. I mean, let's say you, you have a uh, uh, Uncle Jack, all right? You and, and your mom, you, you never knew your, your pa, but, but you and your mom, you grew up, and, and Uncle Jack was always, always there. And you call them underneath your breath and around your friends, ugly Uncle Jack, because Uncle Jack was just straight up ugly. He was an, an ugly beast. And he was kind of a creepy guy. He kind of didn't want to be around you, but he walked with a limp, and, he was, and he'd come to your game sometimes, and you're embarrassed as who knows what, and you went out the other way with your friends to get away from when it was over. Just ugly Uncle, Uncle Jack. And, and you know, you, you went through college, you went through school, and, and now your mom calls you up and she says, you know, your Uncle Jack is dying and you probably need to go see him. And so you come up with all the reasons why, you know, you're not going to go see him. And your mom says, listen, I got to tell you this. He made me promise that I wouldn't tell you, but at this point, I just need to tell you. You know, your dad died when you were a baby. And Uncle Jack and Aunt Miriam, it really felt like it was their job to protect us. And so your Uncle Jack left a very uh, well-paying job in Chicago to move next door to us to take care of us. And, and one day, you were baby, you were upstairs sleeping, and I was next door at, at, at your Aunt Miriam's just hanging out, and we heard the sirens, and we went outside, and our house was engulfed with flames with you upstairs sleeping. About then, your Uncle Jack came home from lunch. Now, I tried to run in. But the fireman grabbed me. But, but your Uncle Jack got in. And we thought that we lost both of you. Until he appeared at a window and he, he dropped you to some firemen. And then he just fell out. Broke his, broke his back. First degree burns all over his body. You want to know how he became ugly, Uncle Jack? You want to know how he, why he walks with a limp? And his desire so much was to have a relationship with you. He wanted to go fishing. You wouldn't have anything to do with it. You always had reason. He would go to your games and you'd walk away from him. But, but still, you want to know how you got to college? You, ever, you never questioned that. Your Uncle Jack took it upon himself to make sure you got there. Now I think 
you need to go talk to him. You know, if that happened, you'd go talk to your Uncle Jack. Now, nothing as far as history has changed. It's all the exact same. But your understanding of it has changed. And suddenly your relationship with him, radically different, radically different. As we deal with our God, as we deal with the world, I mean, sometimes with God we think he's not, either, not existent or he's mean or he's an ogre or he's far away, whatever else. We just don't understand is the issue. If we knew reality, you know what? And this is what sanctuary gives you. Our relationship with him, our relationship with the world, how we saw it, radically different. I don't have to tell you, right? That our house was on fire. And he left heaven to come down into the alley of, of, of the ghetto in New York, 1 a.m. in the in, in Sunday morning, taking all of the pain and the grief that, that uh, was due us. And the only reason he did it is because our house was on fire. And he told his, his followers, remember this? He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. He says, no, no one has greater love than to lay down your life for your friends. And remember when they're in the, the garden and Peter pulls the sword, Jesus says, Peter, for crying out loud, don't you realize I can at once call thousands of angels to protect me? Well, I'm telling you what, when, if I was in Jesus' shoes, as soon as the guard stepped out of the shadow with that flagrant, I'd have been calling those angels. And if, if I'm not then, as soon as I got the first crack, I would have been, that would have been it. But Jesus knew your house was on fire, my house was on fire. That's the only way he could save us. As, as we get into sanctuary, our perspective on life, is, it shifts. It, it, on him, on other people, on ourselves, radically transformed. You know, for myself, what happened with me, uh, on my knees, by my bed at Moody, crying, I was, I was doubting my beliefs in a major way and pretty much believing my doubts. But I, I did manage a prayer and I said, Oh God, here's the bottom line. I'm going to try to follow you. I'm going to do everything I can that your stinking Bible says. And I'm going to try to do it all right and then my life will be your fault. That's kind of arrogant, right? But it was as if God said, okay, I'll take you up on that. I didn't get up off my knees and suddenly all my doubts were gone. It was a process. But as sanctuary quit being a religious place, become more of a holy place, as, as uh, I continued on, with what I knew what was right, not with what I felt. I, I went back to saying, I'm going to believe my beliefs, I'm going to doubt my doubts, not the other way around. In time. When doubt comes, because it's going to come, when it comes, don't. Don't doubt your beliefs and start believing your doubts. What you need to do is run to sanctuary. And even if you can't pray, he's still there and he knows. And as you seek him in his word, as you seek him, transformation, transformation.